I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we raise a prayer to God. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful opportunity of being in your house of worship on your holy Sabbath. We ask, Lord, that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit will be here with us to instruct us and to show us the way in which we need to go as we prepare for the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. So thank you for being with us, and thank you for answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of our presentation this morning is The Return of Elijah. And to begin with, I would like us to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses uh, 16 and 17. Luke chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. Now, we're not going to read the context, but beginning with verse 5, we have the account of the birth of John the Baptist. And so this passage is speaking about John the Baptist. Notice verse 16, and I'm going to underline certain key words. It says there, And he, that is John, John the Baptist, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, I want you to notice that. The mission of Elijah in the Bible, and we're going to notice that there are three Elijahs in the Bible, is always directed towards God's people. The mission of Elijah is not primarily to reach out to the world, the message of Elijah is primarily to reach out to God's professed people, those who profess to serve God. You'll notice once again, verse 16 says, and he will turn, by the way, that could also be translated convert, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now if he's going to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God, it's because the children of Israel have gone astray from God. Are you following me? Now notice verse 17. He will also go before him, when it says he, that's John the Baptist, and when it says he will go before him, that is before the Messiah, before Jesus, and what will he do? He will go before him in the spirit and power of whom? Of Elijah. So what is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is Elijah. At least he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Notice, let's finish verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And here it is again. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, there are several things I want to underline here as we begin our study. Number one, Elijah is always sent to those who profess to be God's people. That's his particular mission. Secondly, the role of Elijah, we're going to notice, is to restore the truths that have been forgotten and abandoned by God's own people. And in the third place, it's his purpose to prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord. In the case of John the Baptist, it's the coming 
the first coming of Jesus. In the case of the end time Elijah, which we're going to study, his purpose is to prepare people for the second coming. Now let's go also to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verses 10 through 13. Matthew 11 verses 10 to 13. I want you to notice that John the Baptist in the New Testament is spoken of as Elijah. And by the way, John was asked in John chapter 1 whether he was Elijah and he said, no, I'm not Elijah. We're going to notice that Jesus says he is Elijah. Now, is there a contradiction? Not really. You see, Jesus meant that he was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But he was not Elijah in person. Whereas those who asked John if he was Elijah, they believed in uh, the idea that souls came and inhabited bodies after the death of a person and that this was really Elijah in person. And so John says, if you're think I'm, thinking that I'm Elijah in person, you're wrong. What Jesus means is that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to accomplish the same mission. Now notice Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And now here comes the key verse. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Who is Elijah according to Jesus? John the Baptist. So we have two passages so far. Luke 1, he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here Jesus says this is the Elijah who was going to come. And then there's a third passage, Matthew chapter 17 and verses 10 through 13. Matthew 17 and verses 10 to 13. It says there, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming first. And will what? What does restore mean? Say you have a piece of furniture in your house, an antique, which was made a hundred years ago. But the varnish has fallen off, it's scratched up. What do you do? You restore it by sanding it, by repainting it. Is it the same item of furniture? Yes, it is, but it's restored. Notice that the purpose of Elijah is not to bring new truth. It's not to teach new doctrines. It's to bring God's people back to the old landmarks, which they've forgotten. It's to restore the truth that has been lost. And so it says, Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. What did Jesus mean when he said that Elijah has come already? The disciples understood it. Notice verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of whom? Of John the Baptist. And so in the New Testament, Elijah is John the Baptist. Not in person, but he came uh, with the same power and to proclaim the same message and to fulfill the same mission as Elijah of the Old Testament. Now let's ask ourselves, 
What was the mission and the message of this New Testament Elijah, of John the Baptist? There are several elements. Go with me to Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3. Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3. We're going to study now the elements of the message of this New Testament Elijah, of John the Baptist. We've already noticed that he's coming to restore what has been forgotten and what has been abandoned. He is coming to call God's own people back to the old landmarks. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants to prepare a people for the coming of the Messiah. Now, let's study more specifically what his message is. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is part of the message of Elijah? He calls people to what? To repent. Now let me ask you, what do you repent of? Of course, you repent of sin. Let me ask you, what is sin? 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is the transgression of the law. Did John the Baptist exalt the law of God? He sure did. In fact, he was willing to die because he preached the law of God, particularly the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. When he preached that commandment, we'll notice in a few moments, he gained the enmity of a woman called Herodias. And she got so angry that he preached that commandment to her that she made up her mind that she was going to kill him. So when he says repent, it means to repent of sin. And you can't repent of sin unless you realize that sin is breaking the law. So John exalts the law of God. But let me ask you, what is the solution for sin? Well, notice John chapter 1 and verse 29, an, another element of the message of Elijah. He not only says repent, he not only says you've broken the law, be sorry because you have broken the law, he not only exalts the commandments of God, but there's something else which is of crucial importance. He also speaks about the solution to the problem of sin. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, this is the way that John the Baptist, the New Testament Elijah, introduces Jesus Christ. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So notice that John the Baptist not only calls people to repent because they've broken God's law, but he also tells them what the solution to the problem of breaking the law is. It's found in the Lamb of God that when you accept the Lamb of God, He takes away your sin. He washes your sins in His blood. Notice Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14 on this same point. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14. Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the solution for sin. It says there in chapter 7 and verse 14, And I said to Him, Sir, you know, so he said to me, this is speaking about the redeemed, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes, that by the way, robes means character, they have washed their robes and made them white in what? In the blood of the Lamb. So notice that John preaches two things. He preaches law and he preaches gospel. He preaches the need to repent from breaking God's law but he also speaks about Jesus as the cleansing power, as the forgiver of sins through his blood. He preaches law and he preaches gospel as well. But he preached more than this. 
Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10. He not only spoke about receiving forgiveness through the blood of Jesus from your transgressions of the law, he did much more than this. He also spoke about the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice uh, chapter 3 of Matthew and verse 10. Actually, let's read verse 11 and then we'll go back to 10 in a moment. It says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. In other words, for forgiveness of sin, you repent, you're baptized, your sins are buried in the water, your sin is taken care of. That represents the fact that Jesus, the Lamb, is going to cleanse you from your sins. But he, he speaks of more than that. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what? And with fire. So he not only speaks about forgiveness of sin, he also speaks about receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the power of the Holy Spirit for? Let's go back to verse 10. Verse 10. It says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast where? And cast into the fire. Did John the Baptist only say that it's okay to be forgiven? but not perfect? Did he speak only justification and not the need for a sanctified life? No. In fact, he says, produce fruit, meat for repentance. What that means is fruit that comes from repentance, that flows from repentance. My question is, how can you produce that fruit? Can you do it yourself? Can you do it through your own power? Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and uh, verses uh, 22 and 23 speaks about the fruit of what? The fruit of the Spirit. And so John the Baptist says when you have the Spirit, you have the power, and when you have the power, you will bear what? You will bear fruit. Now what is that fruit? That fruit is not only forgiveness, it is holiness. It is sanctification. It is living in harmony with God's will because the Holy Spirit is in your life. You say, how do we know that? Go with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. See, many Christians are shortchanging themselves. They only have half a gospel. And you know, they believe that they're forgiven, but there's no power in their lives. And so they, they sin, the same sin, time and again, time and again, with no victory over sin. They say, I know that Jesus forgives my sins, but I'd like to have more than that. I'd like to have the power to overcome sin in my life. Notice Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin, and that happened when Jesus died on the cross, and having become slaves of God, that is when we're baptized and we become servants of Jesus, you have your fruit to what? What is the fruit? Holiness. And at the end, what? Everlasting life. So what is the fruit? It's the sanctified life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, long-suffering. You know the list that's found in Galatians chapter 5. It's a change in your life. As Paul says, it is holiness in your life. And by the way, the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, 
that we need to perfect holiness in the fear of God without which none will see the Lord. Because the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And so John the Baptist exalts the law by saying repent of sin. Sin is breaking the law. He says, but you can't take care of your sin. You have to turn to the Lamb of God and wash your character in His blood. He'll take away the sin of the world. He'll take away your sin. But God also wants to give you His Holy Spirit, is what Elijah or John the Baptist says. And He wants to give you His Spirit so that you can produce the fruit of your Spirit in your life, so that you can have a life of holiness in harmony with God's will. But there's more to the message of this New Testament Elijah. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12. The message of John the Baptist is also a message of judgment. The message of Elijah is a message of judgment. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12. It says there, His, that is Jesus's, winnowing fan is in his hand. By the way, I need to explain what a winnowing fan is because we don't use winnowing, winnowing fans uh, today, basically what would happen is that they would place the grain uh, on the ground on top of a large piece of uh, plastic or some type of material, and then they would have, uh, probably not plastic, but some type of material, <laughs> but they would have the oxen trample on the grain, and then there was someone, there were people who had big fans, what they would do, they would take the grain and they would throw it up into the air and the people with their fans would uh, blow away the chaff and of course the grain was heavier so it would fall back onto the, not plastic, but onto the material. Now, uh, that's what a winnowing fan is. It says in verse 12, uh, once again, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. What does the wheat represent? The righteous. What does the barn represent? His kingdom, heaven. That's right. It says, and gather his wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff. What does the chaff represent? The wicked. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So let me ask you, is the message of John the Baptist a message of judgment? Is God going to come in judgment upon everyone in this world to see whether they have truly repented of sin and whether the Holy Spirit has really produced the fruit of the Spirit in the life? Yes, and you'll notice that John the Baptist does not say, by their profession you shall know them. He doesn't even say, by their forgiveness you shall know them. He says, by their fruit, every tree that does not produce what? Fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. And incidentally, do you know it's very interesting that the Bible says that we are saved by faith, but we will be judged by works. Because the fruit of our life, our works, show whether our faith was true. Whether our trust in Jesus was true. In fact, in John chapter 15, uh, in verses 1 through 8, Jesus speaks about abiding in him. He says, he who abides in me and I in him bears what? Bears much fruit. And then he says, my father is glorified when you bear much fruit. Let me ask you, can you talk about a judgment without talking about the law? James chapter 2 and verse 12 says that we will all be judged by what? 
by the perfect law of liberty. The standard in the judgment uh, by which your life will be evaluated is God's holy law. So you can't talk about the judgment like John the Baptist, who is the New Testament Elijah, unless you also talk about God's holy law, because you will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. Once again, the message of John the Baptist includes several things. The message of Elijah, it includes repentance from sin. Sin is transgression of the law. It includes accepting Jesus Christ, washing your character in his blood for forgiveness. It includes receiving the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It includes uh, uh, producing in your life the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It includes the idea that Jesus is going to come in judgment and he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous on the basis of his holy law. There's a lot of elements in this message of Elijah. And what is the purpose of this whole message that he proclaims? Notice Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. The whole purpose of this is uh, mentioned in this verse. It says there, Luke 1 verse 17, the following. He will also go before him, that is before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And now notice this last line. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What was the purpose of the work of this New Testament Elijah? To prepare the people for the coming of whom? Of Jesus the Messiah. How many people were actually prepared when Messiah came? Was this message primarily for the Romans? Huh? You say no. No, not primarily. Was this message primarily for the Greeks? Is the Elijah message for the church primarily, or is it primarily for the world? It's primarily for the church, because the church is an apostasy. Elijah comes to restore. Elijah comes to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers, the teachings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elijah comes to restore. Elijah comes to make a people ready for the coming of Jesus. People who claim to serve God, but their hearts are far away from him. Notice Luke chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5. Luke chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5. Here we find a little description, very important description, about the role of this New Testament Elijah, John the Baptist. He's actually quoting a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 3 and verse 4 says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low, and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. Now what is that talking about? You know, when a king was going to visit a certain area in antiquity, they needed to make sure that the road was perfectly in perfect condition for the king to be able to march to wherever he was going, in his, actually ride in his chariot to wherever he was going without any bumps in the road, without any holes in the road, so that a path 
could be prepared for him. This is really speaking about bumps and holes that we have in our lives. And God wants to repair those bumps and those holes. That's what the message of Elijah is all about. So that when Jesus comes, there will be no bumps and no holes in our characters so that when he comes, there is a people prepared for his coming. Now I'd like to share with you just a few details about the Old Testament Elijah. It's interesting that every time Elijah appears in the Bible, and there are three primary Elijahs and there are two secondary Elijahs, Today we're only going to talk primarily about the New Testament Elijah and the end time Elijah. But whenever Elijah appears, he never appears by himself. He always appears accompanied by three enemies. No matter which Elijah it is, whether it's the Old Testament Elijah, the New Testament Elijah, the final Elijah, he always appears, when he appears to present his message, there are three enemies that arise with him at the same time. Now, let's review very briefly the three enemies of the Old Testament Elijah. Most of you probably know the story of the Old Testament Elijah. God raised him up to come to Israel because Israel was in apostasy. They were worshiping Baal, the sun god. They were breaking the commandments of God according to 1 Kings chapter 18 and verses 17 and 18. They were practicing false worship. And so God raised up Elijah to go and take a message to the children of Israel to bring them back to the Lord their God. Now when Elijah, Elijah arose to present the message, who arose to oppose his message? A threefold union. The first of these, of course, was King Ahab. Do you know what kind of king Ahab was? He was a weakling. That's right. He was putty in the hands of whom? In the hands of Jezebel. In other words, basically, she dictated what was going to take place. And he just followed what she said. He was spineless. Go with me just for a moment to take a look at that. At 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 25. We're not going to dwell a lot on the Old Testament Elijah because that would take us far beyond the time limits that we have. But uh, we need to know just a, little, uh, a few details about this. Notice 1 Kings chapter 21 and let's read verse 25. This will tell you what kind of king he was. It says there, And there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And now notice this. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So who's moving the strings? Jezebel is moving the strings. Ahab is the king. He has the political power. He is the civil ruler that can make laws and declarations. But unless there's this vile woman behind him, manipulating him, Elijah has no problems. His problem is when this woman joins forces with the king. Now, let's notice something about Jezebel. Do you know who Jezebel was? She was a prostitute. It says so in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 20 to 23. She was a harlot, and she had joined the king. When the harlot joined the king, suddenly the existence and message of Elijah was in peril. It was in danger. But there was a third element in this union of the Old Testament. It wasn't only the king, Ahab. It wasn't only this harlot woman, Jezebel, 
but there were also the instruments of Jezebel to extend her religion. Notice what it says in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18 and notice the third leg in this triple alliance. Chapter 18 and verse 19. Here we find the following words. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me and Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, who what? Who eat at Jezebel's table. Who did Jezebel feed? The false prophets of Baal. In other words, this harlot woman had an apostate priesthood through which she extended her influence, through which she extended her power. They were her spokespersons, so to speak. And so we find in the Old Testament this threefold union. Jezebel, the harlot, Ahab, the king, and the prophets of Baal who do the biddings of Jezebel to extend the apostate religion among God's people, among Israel. Now what kind of woman was this Jezebel? Notice chapter 18 in verse 4. It says, For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord. This was a persecuting woman, wasn't it? A vile woman. Now who was in control of this whole situation in the Old Testament? Was the king the dangerous figure? No. Were the false prophets the danger, dangerous figure? No, without Jezebel, they could do nothing. Who is the dangerous figure that's manipulating and guiding everything and moving the strings? It is this vile harlot woman, Jezebel. Now with this background, we're able to go back to the New Testament, and we want to ask the question, did the New Testament Elijah, John the Baptist, also have three enemies that arose at the same time that he did? Now I want you to notice that there's going to be, this plot is going to really thicken now. It's going to become very, very interesting. You see, Elijah never rises by himself. Whenever Elijah appears in history, his three enemies wake up at the same time. Now notice Mark chapter 6, and let's begin reading at verse 14. This is going to speak about the death of the New Testament Elijah. It says in verse 14, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. That is, he had heard about Jesus. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. He thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Verse 15, Others said, It is Elijah. And others said, It is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For, and then we're going to hear the story. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison. Why? Why did he bind him in prison? Was the enemy of John the Baptist Herod? Was that his primary enemy? No, wasn't. Who's the vile person in this story of the death of the New Testament Elijah? It is this harlot woman. This fornicating woman, we're going to notice in a moment. Notice once again verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Why was he in prison? Because of Ahab? No, because of Herodias. 
his brother Philip's wife. Who was it? Who had he taken? His brother's wife. What does the Bible call that? Adultery. So is Herodias an adulterous woman? This vile woman who's moving the strings? Absolutely. Why did John get into trouble? Notice verse 18. For John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Did John the Baptist uh, rebuke this vile relationship between the king and Herodias? The fornication of the two? Yes. Did this cause the anger of Herodias? It most certainly did. Now notice verse 19. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Uh, she probably, it looks like she maybe had a little deadly wound or something. She had no influence or no power in herself. She needed someone to help her regain her power and get what she wanted. Now notice what it says in verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And he what? Protected him. Was, uh, was the government the enemy of Elijah? John the Baptist? Was the civil power a danger to him by itself? No. In fact, it says that the civil power actually what? Protected him. And then it continues saying, And when he had heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. No problem with the government. <laughs> the problem comes from elsewhere. Notice verse 21. Then an opportune day came. Opportune for whom? For Herodias. That's right. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. Now we're going to notice the third protagonist in the story. By the way, Herod is a what? King. Herodias is a harlot woman. And what is the third protagonist in the story? Verse 22. And when Herodias says, Oh, so this is a relationship, king, mother, daughter. Ah, oh, that's got to be a coincidence. I don't think so. Revelation is going to pick up on this. How about the Old Testament? Is this a reflection of what happened to the Old Testament, Elijah? The same relationship? Absolutely. And so it says in verse 22, And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, what do you suppose they were drinking at that party? Water, right? Good old Culligan man bottled water. Give a good plug to Culligan man here. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, he had to be drunk, folks, whatever you ask me I will give to you up to half my kingdom for a dance. Have mercy. Now verse 24. Is the daughter the dangerous figure in this story? Is the king the dangerous figure in this story? No. In the Old Testament Elijah story, is the king the dangerous figure? 
Are the prophets of Baal the dangerous figures? No, it is Jezebel. And so this story bears a striking similarity to the Old Testament Elijah. See, his three enemies. John the Baptist appears, he's Elijah. All of a sudden the devil says, my three are going to be raised up too. So it says in verse 24, So she went out and said to her mother, Amazing. What shall I ask? Who does she cater to? Her mother. What shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Now what if, uh, what if your mother said, I want you to bring Pastor Boar's head on a platter. I would hope that you would say, Mother, how dare you ask such a thing? That's horrible. Was the daughter just like her mother? She was an image of her mother. And not only that, she was the spokesman for her mother. Any relationship with Revelation? Hmm. See, these are the things that show me that the Bible was inspired by God. There's no way a human mind could have invented this. It's too precise. It's too exact. Because history repeats itself. Because the devil is always the same and God is always the same. So history is always the same. Because history operates on the basis of divine principles and satanic principles. And therefore, history repeats and repeats. Because God always works in the same way and the devil always commits the same mistakes. Now notice, once again, verse 24, So he went out and said to her, Mother, what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Did she even think it over? No. She said, Oh, piece of cake. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Did the king know that he had made a mistake? He sure did. Did he have the guts to stand up and do what was right? No. Because he had made a decree and he didn't have the willingness to change it. Do you know that this is going to happen at the end of time too? See, if you want the second half of what we're studying this morning, you've got to come tonight. What Jesus said about religion and politics. That is a very hot topic these days and we need to know it. So I expect all of you back tonight. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison. And now verse 28 is a crucial verse. Brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl... And the girl gave it to her mother. Who is the vile person in the plot of this story? It is the mother. Her daughter does her biddings. And through her daughter she gets the king to do her biddings. That's the relationship. 
Now let's go to the book of Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. And let's see if John the Baptist is the final Elijah or whether we are to expect another Elijah before the end of human history. Notice Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When does God promise to send Elijah? Before when? Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, when is that, the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Well, let's read verses 1 to 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Sounds very similar to what John the Baptist said. Every tree that does not bear fruit is, what, cut down and thrown where? In the fire. Verse 2, but you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like uh, stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So let me ask you, before when is God going to send Elijah, according to this passage? Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the second coming of Jesus. Was John the Baptist the final fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy? No. Because John the Baptist died, and Jesus came in his first coming, but he did not come with the description that we find here in Malachi chapter 4. And so we are to expect another what? Another Elijah. Now listen to a principle that I'm going to share with you at this moment. Crucial principle. We studied it last Sabbath morning. We studied it last Saturday night. And I'm going to review it now. Who is Israel today? The church. And where is the church? All over the world. Right? So Israel is worldwide. And it is spiritual Israel. Not literal blood of Abraham necessarily flowing through the veins. So Israel is worldwide. Let me ask you then, this harlot, or let's say Elijah first, Elijah must also be what? Worldwide. It must mean that the harlot must also be what? Worldwide. It must mean that the daughter is also worldwide. And it must mean that we're not only talking about one individual king, we're talking about the kings of the earth and of the whole world. What I'm saying is that because when we are Christ's, we are Abraham's seed, Israel is worldwide, therefore the Elijah that brings the message to Israel is worldwide, therefore the enemies that oppose worldwide Elijah are also worldwide enemies. In other words, we're not dealing with literal people, we are dealing with worldwide systems. Are you understanding me? Raise your hand if you're understanding me. You're so quiet out there this morning. Almost this afternoon. So we're to expect an end time Elijah, but it's going to be a worldwide Elijah. It's going to be a movement. It's not going to be a person. And he's going to present the message to God's worldwide Israel. And there are going to be three worldwide enemies. Now the question is, does the book of Revelation speak about 
the Elijah and the worldwide enemies? Yes, it does. Go with me to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. We're going to talk now about the end time Elijah. Revelation 16, and let's read verse of all, first of all, verse 19. Revelation 16 and verse 19. It's speaking about Babylon, and notice. Now the great city was divided into how many? Oh, three parts. Thank you. Why three? Why is Babylon composed of three? Coincidence. An accident. Huh? Uh-uh. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was, notice, great Babylon, this is Babylon. Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now what are these three parts of Babylon? Let's go back to verse 16. Actually, verse 13. It speaks about the three parts of Babylon. It says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the what? Of the dragon. That's one. And out of the mouth of the beast. That's two. And out of the mouth of whom? Of the false prophet. So how many parts does Babylon have? Three. The dragon the beast, and the false prophet. Now the question is, what do the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet represent? Let's talk first of all about the dragon. You say the dragon represents Satan. Yes, primarily, but not only. You see, in the Bible, the dragon also represents the governments of the world or the kings of the world that the devil uses to accomplish his purposes. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples so that you can see this principle that the dragon behind the scenes is Satan, but the visible element that he uses are the kings of the world to accomplish his purposes. You remember when Jesus was born, the Bible says that the dragon stood next to the woman to devour the son when the son was born? That's in Revelation chapter 12. Question. Who was it that stood next to the woman to devour Jesus when Jesus was born? Was it the devil? In person? No. Who did he use? A king, a king called Herod. So Herod is the visible dragon who's being used by the dragon behind the scenes. In Ezekiel 29 and verse 3, Pharaoh, and we're not going to take time to show how the story of Moses and the story of the birth of Jesus are parallel, but Pharaoh in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 29 and verse 3, is called the great dragon who stands in the midst of his rivers. And so the dragon is Satan, yes, but the dragon also represents the kings of the world. Now I have a question. Is there going to be a harlot involved in all of this at the end of time? Go with me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Let's start reading at verse 1. Revelation 17 and verse 1. Says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So is there a harlot here? Where does she sit? On many waters. What are the many waters? Verse 15 says, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Does she control the peoples of the world? Yes, she does. She sits on them. Does she work by herself? 
No, notice what it continues saying in verse 2. With whom? King Ahab. King Herod. I want you to see the principle. With whom? The kings of the Middle East. Mm -mm. With whom the... You say, what version are you reading? You look at me kind of bleary-eyed, you know. <laughs> With whom the kings of the earth. What does King Ahab represent? The kings. What does King Herod represent? The kings. In other words, what was literal and local becomes spiritual and worldwide. With whom the kings of the earth committed what? Fornication. A harlot commits fornication with the king. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk. With what? With the wine of her fornication. What do the kings do when they're made drunk? They do the same thing that Herod did to John the Baptist. They're filled with wrath. You can read it in chapter 18. We'll go there in a moment. Now notice verse 5. Does this woman work by herself with the kings? Is it just the harlot and the kings? No. Notice verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. What is she called? The mother. Why, of all coincidences, this harlot who fornicates with the kings, who gives them wine so that they will notice them to kill God's people, God's Elijah, it says here that she's the mother. How many of you know a mother that has never had children? Anybody know a mother that has never had children? I know, who, know women who haven't had children. But I don't know the first mother who hasn't had children. This must mean that the mother also has what? Also has children that do her biddings. And so the dragon are the kings of the earth. The beast is the same as the mother in this passage. And the false prophet is the same as what? As the daughters or the children of this harlot. Are you understanding me or not? Is the plot at the end of time going to be the same as with the two previous Elijahs? Absolutely. And by the way, what would this harlot represent? This is the amazing thing, folks. People are looking over to the Middle East for the fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible makes it clear that in prophecy, a woman represents the church. And a harlot woman represents a church that has become corrupt. That controls and dominates the whole world. That is involved in the political systems of the world. Because she fornicates with the kings. That has children that were born from her in the 16th century. And reflect many of her teachings. Are you catching the picture? And so when Elijah is sent at the end of time, is he sent to denounce the atheists and the agnostics and the unbelievers? Folks, the primary message of the end time Elijah is to call the Christian church back to 
the roots back to the fundamental teachings of God's holy word. And that would include God's law. It would include God's Sabbath. It would include Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It would include the idea that His judgment hour has come. It would include the idea that we are to worship the Creator of the heavens and the earth. It would include restoring everything that the Christian church has lost. It would mean preparing the Christian world for the coming of the Messiah. Don't get your hopes up too high because John the Baptist preached and when Jesus came, he came to his own and his own received him not. How is Jesus going to find the Christian world when he comes the second time? He's going to come to his own and his own are going to receive him not because the church has become corrupted by false teachings and false practices and false doctrines. Therefore God has raised up the remnant today worldwide with the intent of preparing the world and proclaiming to the church the need of consecrating the life, the life to Jesus and to his end-time message, his end-time truths. By the way, in Ezekiel chapter 16, repeatedly, Israel is called the harlot. God's own people called the harlot. How could they be addressed in this way? Because they've abandoned the truth of God. And Elijah always comes before the coming of the Messiah to prepare the world to bring the church back I'll just mention these verses very quickly in closing. Revelation 14, verse 6 says that this Elijah message is going to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It couldn't, Elijah couldn't be one person. One person could not take the message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It must be a worldwide Elijah movement in order for this to be fulfilled. This Elijah will exalt Jesus Christ, yes, as the one who forgives sin. Because it says that the first angel brings the everlasting gospel, which is the idea that Jesus died for us and was buried and resurrected for our justification. This church will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this church will also preach that we're supposed to honor the Creator. The first angel's message says, Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and fountains of waters. This would call people back to the Creator, and the sign of the Creator is His holy Sabbath. Revelation 14, verse 7 says that part of the message is the hour of his judgment has come. And this is before Jesus returns. Because after this message, there are two more. And then Jesus is seen on the clouds. So it would have to be a movement that proclaims that now Jesus is in the judgment, separating the righteous from the unrighteous and determining what their rewards will be to gather his people into his vine and to throw those who have not accepted his message into the fire. The conclusion of the third angel's message says, Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And by the way, when the three messages are ended, Jesus is seen seated on a cloud. Of course, the cloud represents the angels. And now he's coming to the earth in power and great glory because the message of the final Elijah has concluded. Our people are prepared for the coming of God. Now you might be saying, Pastor Bohr, 
Aren't you being kind of harsh on the Christian world? No, the Bible is being harsh on the Christian world. Because the Christian world has gone astray from God, and Elijah is called to present a message to the Christian world. Some people say, why does the Seventh-day Adventist Church focus its efforts on presenting a message to all of the churches? The reason is Elijah is sent to those who profess to be God's people. Let's conclude with just one verse. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. This is the final Elijah message which God has called this church to proclaim to all of God's people in the whole world. Notice chapter 18 and verse 1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Is this going to be a worldwide message? Is it going to be a powerful message? Oh, tremendous! The final Elijah message. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen. Is fallen. And Babylon has three parts, right? And has become a habitation of demons. Does that sound like a place you want to be? You've got to escape from this Babylonian system. A prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. See that this is a worldwide harlot? Do you see it? And that the king represents the kings of the whole world? And Elijah is a message that goes to the whole, whole world by a people? And so it says, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And now notice this, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, you atheists. Come out of her, you skeptics. Come out of her, you agnostics. Who's in Babylon? God's people. Is this the Elijah message to God's people? Come out of her, my people. See, God has a lot of loving Christians in all these systems. Praise the Lord. We're talking about them as systems, not as individuals. They're undoubtedly millions more of God's children in all of the churches than in the Adventist church. Because I'll tell you what, there's going to be a big exodus from the Adventist church. All of those who come to church and just warm the pews Sabbath after Sabbath and don't come to the evangelistic meetings. (laughs) Just had to get that in there. It's time to warm up, folks. It's time to make first things first. Time to make the main thing the main thing. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Revelation 17, verse 6 says that this harlot is going to try to kill God's people. She's going to be filled with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. 
But Jesus will come and he will deliver his Elijah. And like the Old Testament Elijah, God's people will be translated to heaven from among the living. When Jesus comes with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, those who are alive will be caught up with those who died and resurrect, which probably John the Baptist will be there, and so that we can always be with the Lord. And then when we're up there, we'll be able to talk with Elijah about all these things and with John the Baptist about all of these things. What a wonderful privilege it will be to sit at the foot of God's throne and throw our crowns down and thank him for all of the wonderful things that he did to make it possible for us to spend eternity with him. Let us pray. Father, we've studied this morning about Elijah. We thank you for sending Elijah before you come. Because if you didn't, there would be no one ready for the coming of Jesus. I ask, Lord, that you will help this message that you have given through me this morning will reach into the depths of the hearts of everyone here this morning, Adventists and non-Adventists, and help us belong to that people who have a passion and a zeal to share your end-time message with the world, because Jesus is coming soon. Give us the courage and the determination to do it. For your honor and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.